Hey guys, it's Dawn. I want to let you know about a new space I'm creating called What's the Truth Community. If you've experienced trauma in childhood, the truth becomes very elusive because in toxic families, what goes on behind closed doors is secret. And then we are told so many false beliefs about who we are like you are bad, useless, stupid, unlovable, shameful, you will never amount to anything. All the lies and manipulation that changes who you are. But did you know that each belief that gets filed away in your subconscious mind is so powerful? Each belief influences every choice you make and that can change the entire trajectory of your life. And the biggest problem is that you can't see it. You can't see the truth anymore because it gets buried too deep. And so you continue in these same toxic patterns for years. The truth is that you grew up with a highly dysfunctional, abusive, abandoning, manipulative parent, and they projected all of their own trauma, anger, hate, unworthiness onto you and so actually none of the things you've been made to believe about yourself are true it's just been passed down but how do you unlearn that how do you even see it in these subscriber only episodes we delve further into the truth to explode the toxic beliefs that don't belong to us to see the false beliefs and the toxic patterns because once we can see it we can change it and then we can live in peace, freedom and authenticity. When you join the What's the Truth community, you will receive subscriber-only episodes. And all episodes, both regular and subscriber episodes, will be ad-free. And all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. You cannot heal in isolation. We heal in community. This is your safe space. If you listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can sign up right there in the app. And if you listen on any other platform, you can sign up via Supercast. It's super easy. Go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. In episode one, I am sharing more of my truth and I can't wait to see you over there. 
is actually a defense mechanism that's hiding you from the real world. The real you, you are not your personality. It is an ego defensive psychological structure designed to keep all the trauma and wounds and things undealt with hidden and protected in a way. And so you use that personality to interact with the world, but it's not the real you. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, my beautiful friend, do you suffer from depression? Symptoms of depression are not always obvious. You might feel constantly tired. You might be low in energy, low in motivation. You might have constant feelings of anxiety or worry, feelings of sadness or feeling constantly guilty about everything. If this sounds like you, take a look at Destroy Depression. It's a treatment plan that works regardless of your symptoms or your age. It's a totally drug-free, straightforward plan that explains everything you need to know about eliminating depression step by step. Destroy Depression helps you dominate your depression. It helps you take back control over your symptoms and it comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee so you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Click the link in the show notes to find out more about how Destroy Depression can help you because you really do deserve to live your life free from the symptoms of depression. Hey, my beautiful friends. On the Heal blog this week, I'm sharing with you the facts about complex trauma. If you're struggling with trauma or you know somebody that is, this blog post is an inside look into what it's like living with complex trauma day to day, what the journey to healing looks like, what it feels like. I am sharing the link to this blog post in the show notes. The Enneagram might date back to as early as the ancient Babylon around four and a half thousand years ago. It is a circle with nine points interconnected with lines and each number represents a personality type. Richard Rohr writes that if you could look out at reality from nine pairs of eyes and honour all of them, you would be looking at reality through the eyes of God. 
because all nine numbers together represent the image of God in humanity. So how can the Enneagram help you to find your true self? I'm chatting with Samantha Mackay, Enneagram coach, who says your personality is actually a defense mechanism that is hiding your true self. You are not your personality. Your personality is a psychological structure designed to keep all the trauma and the wounds hidden and protected from view. As a child, this is an important survival strategy. But as an adult, we're meant to function differently. But we've forgotten that we're using these survival strategies because they've become our normal. The Enneagram tells us which survival strategies we are using so that we can dig down to break through these survival strategies and find and live as our true selves. If you are keen to find out your Enneagram number and begin your journey to finding your true self, you can find a link to do the Enneagram test in the show notes. You can also find links to all of Samantha's juicy offerings. Please join me now for Samantha's story. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. You are a personal development coach and you use the Enneagram in your work, which is kind of fascinating to me. I do love diving into personality types and exploring all the things. You got into this work because of your own journey and your own trauma. Your life has included a series of traumas that I think will be very relatable for people. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. And can you tell us about your first trauma at just two weeks of age? Yeah, it's really interesting. And and thank you for creating this really beautiful space for sharing and, and hearing people's stories. And so when I was just two weeks of age, I wasn't able to breastfeed anymore. And so I was started to be given other forms of milk, probably formula at that time. And I wasn't able to consume it. It gave me all that mucousy, sinusy, sort of cold-like symptoms that you get when you're consuming dairy and, you know, it doesn't agree with you. And it, it took mum a month to figure out what the problem was. So over the course of that month, I was sick and crying and not sleeping and unhappy and I can imagine that I must have had a very upset stomach, that I never felt nourished or comforted by food, that food was always this sense of discomfort and, and unhappiness. And you, and you get to a point where you then can't trust it. You know, you're like, I'm being fed something that I don't want and no one's listening. You know, it feels like no one's listening when you're a newborn because even though your mother is doing the best they can to figure it out and she's been to doctors and they don't know what to do about it, it, you know, in the eighties, people didn't really think about intolerances in the way we might think about them now. Mm. And so it's, and I find it really difficult to connect to the trauma of this because it feels so distant and disconnected and not like a big deal because I can't, feel it. I can't connect with it. And what I'm really learning at the moment is how that has potentially affected my whole life in terms of disordered eating and not being able to trust other people in relationships and feeling difficulty in intimacy. And so how something that might seem very small at a distance, if I imagine that newborn struggling to eat and feel nourished and whole and, and you know, safe, then that's a pretty big trauma for a tiny little 
you know, baby, that's their whole world. That's everything to that child. And yeah, it's taken me a long time to really understand that could be trauma and could need some attention and could be having a big impact on my life. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think in days gone by, nobody would ever have thought of this sort of stuff. You know, you're a baby, you don't remember it. It was whatever. And now we know that trauma can begin in the womb. And so this information is really powerful, I think, to have. And four weeks is a long time. And I'm assuming also that your mum is super stressed and you're super stressed. And so the whole situation, it's somewhere in your subconscious, I'm I'm assuming, and affecting everything that's going on for you in, in the present. So getting past that first trauma, what was your home like? Did you feel like it was a safe space? Was it a happy place to grow up? I find that difficult to answer. And I'm going to bring in the Enneagram here for a second, because as an Enneagram seven, our default is to make things more optimistic than they are. And so we really disconnect from the negative data quite quickly. And so as I look back, there are definitely some, some positive memories but I suspect there was more confusion there because I've already, you know, there's already this sense of distrust, you know, that I I don't quite know what's going on. Will I be taken care of what's happening in this space? And so I can imagine, you know, I don't think things were great with my parents. And when my sister was born, when I was five, I was very, very upset about that. I was, you know, and I don't think it was a sense of, of jealousy, I think it was a sense of complication, you know, already this environment is complicated. We've just added another person to it. I don't know how I'm going to manage all the variables. Mm. And so it's, I remember all the really good things, but it's really hard for me to remember the difficult things. Yeah. And I think even as a little child, we're very aware, aren't we, that things, especially if we're sensitive, we're aware that things around us are not comfortable and not safe. You talk about how when you were five, and I think your little sister was quite small, that your parents went away for a period of time and that was quite traumatic. Can you talk about that? So my sister was born when I was five. And so sometime in the following year, you know, six to 12 to 18 months later, my parents went on a holiday for three weeks. My sister and I stayed home in the family home with my grandparents who, you know, as a five, six-year-old, I knew and trusted and had a relationship with. But my sister, who was potentially one or younger, didn't have, she wasn't psychologically able to have a relationship really beyond the immediate family, if not just beyond, you know, that mother or caregiver role as children of that age are. And so she was really, really upset by the absence of her, you know, her mother. And What I noticed now, having done some work on it, was that my five-year-old self stepped into that sort of almost parental role, you know? You're the only person here that you really know and trust. I will come in and obviously not take care of your physical needs, but we'll try and be there for you emotionally and supportive in the way that, you know, people try and do. And what I've realized is that for me, that felt like this compulsive need to be responsible and take on that responsibility, but also completely overwhelming and anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. And I think that has ramifications down the track for any relationship I've been in, but it's also mean that I'm very protective of my sister. 
And so when mm-hmm. I was discussing this incident a couple of years ago, when I first started to realize the impact it had on me, and I was discussing it with with my mother, and I my initial response was anger on my sister's behalf. You know, I just read this book called Flight from Intimacy, which is about counterdependency traits as opposed to codependency, because I tend to be more counterdependent. And it talks about, you know, not leaving your child under the age of one for more than 20 hours a week because it interrupts their, you know, psychological development. And as I was speaking to my mother about this, I just got enraged at, you know, how could she, you know, leave a child under the age of one for this period of time? And what I noticed in that rage, in that, you know, those really powerful feelings was that I wasn't in that equation. It was all about my sister. And when I got off that phone call, I stepped into that and said, well, how did that five-year-old Samantha feel? What was her experience in there? And I just, you know, broke down and there was a lot of crying that followed that. And I still haven't fully processed all of that moment. But I find it interesting now as I've, I've gotten older, I can see that how that patterns in my relationships. I get incredibly anxious in relationships and feel sort of this sense of responsibility, but a need for distance because it's, you know, it's just this tension, this push-pull tension that I just don't know how to cope with because I'm stuck in that five-year-old self who does not know how to cope, who doesn't have those skills. And I've just spent nine months helping my sister, babysitting her toddler, you know, two days a week for nine months. And there's no one else in the world I would do that for because I am not a kid oriented person. And I can see I'm like still there helping my sister because that also is programmed in, you know, from that experience. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? When you see the effects of that, you, you said they're counter, counterdependent. Yeah. Can you just explain what counterdependent? Cause I haven't actually heard that before. Yeah. So the Flight from Intimacy book, and they have a corresponding codependency book as well, talks about between the ages sort of zero and three, we have to complete a number of processes to have a psychological birth at the age of three. And at that point, we're able to be more individuated with our emotions and emotional responses. But very few people have that psychological birth. And there's a certain number of processes that if don't get completed, then you exhibit codependent traits and behaviors. And And there's another set of processes that if you don't complete, you then exhibit counterdependent behaviors. And so obviously with codependent, you think about moving towards someone and counterdependent is moving away. Um, So someone who is codependent might look to be more helpful and more attentive and try and show up to things more. Whereas the counterdependent person might work long hours at the office and be really confident and look like they're really successful. But behind that, there is still this, this anxiousness about intimacy and connecting intimately with, with people. And there's a whole range of other traits that go with both of those things, but that's a really mm. tiny snapshot. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And so when you were a little, little girl and you were in this unsafe environment, was that affecting your health as a little child? It took me a long time to realize that it was. So I had my first real chronic illness, I would say, as a a teenager, maybe 14 or 15, and I started to have chronic strep throats Mm. um, and sort of sinusitis, which, again, at the time, you don't really think anything of. And, you know, I was taking medication for that and, you know, working through it. 
But yeah, I mean, and at that time I was also, and I don't know if these periods of time cross over, but I had a lot of suicidal ideation because it just felt, I felt so trapped. I felt unable to express all the emotions I was feeling. And I had a lot of emotions, especially after my parents' divorce. And it just didn't feel like there was any safe harbor in which to land. And that doesn't mean that my my family home or any of my family homes were unsafe physically, but there was just no space for me to really express all that I was feeling. And mm. that was really challenging. There's, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of what I would call emotional intelligence in the family dynamic, more emotional skill. I don't think that's unusual. I just, I think it's just what is for, for you know, my situation. And so I never really built those skills around emotions and how to express them and how to talk about them and mm. all that jazz. And so I, then you, I felt trapped inside yeah. my body and inside my life. Yeah. And I think a lot of people really struggle with that because I think in generations gone past, so many people haven't been emotionally connected or expressed that to their children. And so it just gets passed down, doesn't it? And parents getting divorced is one of the adverse childhood experiences that is one of the trauma pieces because it is a sense of abandonment. You're going between one home and another and neither of them feel like fully home. It's it it's a big trauma in itself, isn't it? Is that what you experienced? Mm, absolutely. And I've definitely had done some somatic work to try and release the, the shock of that moment. But I worked, I briefly met a grief counsellor. I don't know if it was a grief counsellor years ago. We only had one session, but she asked me this question that just changed my life and my understanding of so many things. And she said, have you grieved your parents' divorce? And I said, that's not mine to grieve. And she said, actually. And so we sat there and, and talked about that. And I think it's the biggest grief in my life. I think that grief has carried into every relationship and every ending I've had. But until then, I couldn't even acknowledge or, or know or be conscious of the existence of that grief. I was living it every day, often years at a time, without understanding that it was existing within my system and how powerful it is. And despite having done, you know, a lot of grieving all over, over the last few years and a lot of work, I still think it's there's some of it there. I don't think it's fully processed or, you know, resolved or completed yet. Mm, yeah. And so do you think that was the way that it happened? You said it was a shock just then. Was it something that came about without you expecting that was going to happen? I mean, how old were you at the time? Well, I was eight or nine when the official separation happened. But I have a feeling, and this is more intuitive than known, that once my sister was born, my father became a bit more absent generally. And so for me, I think I think part of my sister's arrival wasn't just the complication, but also that sense of this person who I had, you know, trusted and felt safe with disappeared. And so there was lots of confusion and confusing feelings and things going on over that period of time. But yeah, there was definitely this moment that I remember really vividly, you know, dad had moved out when we weren't there, you know, mum had specifically taken us away from the house that day for that moment. And when we got back, a bunch of things were just gone. And there is, you know, one thing I'm learning about grief, it's really important to go through these rituals, these closing rituals. And whilst I understand 
why mum didn't want to be there. I wonder if I'd been able to see that that transition more tangibly, how that might have changed things. Because I think it was the shock of coming home to a completely different world without really knowing that that was what was coming. And, you know, when mum sat me down and said, I'm going to need you to be more responsible, I'm going to need you, you know, to do more things. And, you know, as a nine-year-old, you don't really understand what that means. You know, an adult might understand what that means. But as a kid, you don't know, nor is it really your responsibility. And, yeah, it really, it really was a shock and a change that I struggled to process and to understand and had a lot of anger from, you know, and I think anger from unprocessed grief and confusion. Mm, Absolutely. And parents, you know, they are trying to do the right thing by they think shielding you from dad leaving with all his stuff, but in a way, you know, like you say, you need that kind of closure. You need to see what's happening. It's just communication, isn't it? And so many kids, I think, People think, oh, they're nine years of age, they, they'll be right, you know, they'll be fine. There's so much emotion going on that they don't even know how to express and to come home and dad's gone and all his things have gone, yeah, it's it's such a trauma and I think it's just not understood very well by hopefully getting better understood by by people now. What was your relationship like with your sister throughout that time? Well good and challenging. So it was described to me that after, you know, my parents got back from that holiday, I would be the person who knew what my sister wanted and needed and what she was feeling. It was like I'd merged with her in that way. And, but at some point, maybe when I was 11 or 12 or 13, I sort of turned on her. And I think the pressure of being in the middle of my parents, you know, and having to manage just got to me and I still, I had no outlet. And so you know, every person who feels bullied or trapped then finds someone else to bully because there has to be a release point. And so for me, it was my sister because, you know, no one really was weaker around me. And so I then began to antagonize her. And I went from being, you know, a very loving and attentive sister to probably a nightmare sister. And it's really hard to apologize for years of being like a a pain in the ass to someone, how difficult that would have been for her. Once we got, she got into her twenties, we became close and we're very good friends now, but there was, yeah, it must've been very challenging for her in those childhood years as well. But on the other hand, she wasn't at the forefront of the divorce in the way I was. Mm. She was young enough to be shielded from that, to not be the one who had to be a mouthpiece for mum to have to speak on her behalf and be trapped in the middle. So in a way, like, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's complicated. Oh, it is. And being the person who's in the middle of a parent's divorce and having to give messages to each parent from the other or whatever it is. I mean, that's so much responsibility for a kid, isn't it? I don't think parents realize how much that can impact a child. And you talked a bit before about suicidal ideation. So how low do you think things got for you? At what point in your life was that happening? I think I was about 14 or 15 at the time. And so again, I'm going to bring in some Enneagram here. Because sevens focus on trying to make things, you know, to be positive because they're avoiding being trapped. For them, suffering seems endless. 
they can be more prone to suicide and suicidal ideation than other types. That's not to say that every type doesn't experience these things, but because of this particular defensive structure, it can be a little more common. And so I think it was just that sense of endlessness, that it felt endless and it felt unbearable. And I would, I'd slipped with a a knife next to my pillow in case anything happened in the night, in case we were robbed or broken into, or, you know, something came in and I was getting great grades at school, but really wasn't close to anyone. I was a part of all the different groups and yes, I had a best friend, but that was more someone I co-opted into being my best friend rather than someone I knew how to be really intimate or emotional, you know, or share things with. And I think it was just that constant of overwhelming emotions, no freedom, no sense of expression, no way to not be controlled that just felt, you know, endless. Now, in those moments, I also knew that it was not something I was ever going to try or go through with, but just that I'd get to this this pit of despair and it would seem like the only solution out of that. When I finally worked with my first therapist at the age of 31, I think, we only worked together for two months, but whatever we did in terms of sort of reconnecting my head to my body, what I found after that was that I could go to the bottom of that pit of despair and death wasn't waiting for me. And once I knew that, it almost became like a springboard. I'm like, right, we can go to into the depths of this this well and we know that we're going to come up again. And I just wish I'd gotten therapy sooner. So it was always, whenever I visited the darkness, that was waiting for me until I finally worked with a therapist that helped there be a springboard at the bottom, help put solid ground into the depths of that darkness. Yeah. So obviously you were struggling for a long time. Why did, why do you think it took you till you were 31 to ask for help? I think that's a mix of things. I moved out as soon as I could and I was about 17 when I did. And I lived on campus, which meant you were then surrounded by alcohol and coffee and, you know, all the things that you didn't necessarily have at home and meeting lots of new people and studying new things and new stresses. And it didn't take long before I was falling apart where I was eating terribly, overwhelmed by anxiety, feeling, you know, like there wasn't a safe place to land. But I grew up in a in a culture of what I would describe as strong women, you know, and this stoicism means you don't ask for help. And it was the, how can I get through this? That was one part of it. Then another aspect of it just was my identity and, you know, my personality is always been based on being really smart. And I'm like, right, well, this depression is horrendous, but I can outthink it. You know, these mm. are just chemicals. I can figure out another way out of what at the time I called, you know, for want of a better word, bipolar. I don't think I was actually bipolar. I think that's just how I was experiencing things. And it was those two things. And yes, after that, I was depressed and grieving for years. And when I finally sought help, I was dating someone who was inappropriate for me, but he had addictions that he was recovering from and he'd worked with a therapist before. And I said to him, you need to help me. I literally cannot open up the internet and search for someone. I need you to give me a recommendation to get me started. Just whatever it was within me, I couldn't start that process myself. I needed someone to really take me by the hand 
and help. I need just, I said, I begged him, give me a name, give me something because I just can't do this on my own. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I think, you know, that was shortly after another, you know, really important relationship had ended. I was living in a new country. I knew no one. And I decided to stay in that country so I could change my life because, you know, it's hard to continue with patterns when you change your environment so substantially. And so I really was just, I'd committed to change, but I was still in the depths of, of, you know, this despair, but I finally recognized that I couldn't do it on my own. I think partly because I'd committed to change and I made this big change, but it was really, really hard to get started. I met with three different counselors and therapists and pick the one that seemed to understand me the most and went from there. Yeah, wow, it's interesting, isn't it? It sounds like you'd spent your whole life figuring out everything, everybody's problems, your parents, your sister. That was your job. It just sounds like it was so hard for you to ask for help for yourself. And I think a lot of people really relate to that because, yeah, it really is a thing within us that we should just be able to do this. Like I should be able to cope. What what the hell's wrong with me? Everyone else is coping. And, of course, nobody's really coping. Everyone's exactly the same. So what what do you think were the biggest realisations when you when you started therapy? Like what were the, the first sort of things that were revealed to you about what had gone on in your life so far, do you mm. think? Well, the... I know a lot of people go to therapy just to talk. And I think there's, and some counselors and therapists almost just expect to be the, the quiet sounding board that, and that let you do all the talking. And for where I was at the time, I couldn't talk. I couldn't, I had no practice in and no ability to articulate anything I was experiencing. And so I needed a therapist who would do the talking for me, who would be able to take the lead in that process. And so she really helped me see how disconnected my mind and body were how very much I was just trying to be ahead, walking around on a sack of meat and how powerful my body was and, you know, trying to connect to things. And this was at a time when one of the reasons I, you know, finally sort of stopped and asked for help was I was so sick. I was plagued with autoimmune conditions and chronic pain and illness. My body was telling me there was a problem and it was crying out and my head was just doing its level best to ignore all of that pain and just keep soldiering on. And what really caused the change, I was living in London at the time and I, I used to be a lawyer and I used to have this near photographic memory and I could remember almost you know, every document in a, in a court case that I was running. And I was in London and I, I, one day, you know, and at this point I'm covered in bandages, I've got seasonal affective disorder, like I am in a horrendous state. I, I just look at this set of files and I realize I don't know where any, I have no idea what's in them. Like whatever is that part of my memory, the way that brain function has really just gone. You know, it's just been burnout, whether that's due to prolonged exposure to cortisol, adrenaline, whether it's something else, I don't know. I still don't know. It's never come back. But that was the moment, you know, until 
my body took away the one thing I valued more than anything else, there was no way I was going to change because my brain was still willing to do, you know, it was still fighting. And so when the one thing I valued was gone, I mean, that was initially part of the motivation. Can I get it back? Mm. And as I started therapy, I realized a lot of what I had to do was, was connect to my body more and be in my body and start to trust my body and trust myself again, almost as a starting place before I could really trust others. But it took a long time for some of those understandings to really land. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's incredible how low we get, isn't it? How unwell. I mean, I can, I'm picturing myself as well in that state. I remember I I couldn't even get a sentence out. Like my brain wouldn't make my mouth work, you know, let alone remembering something. I couldn't even remember how to speak at one point. It's so debilitating. And you mentioned autoimmune conditions. What has happened to those conditions now? Are they healed? Mm, Mostly. So obviously I've done a lot of work over the last 10 years. So what I had is I had a mix of eczema, a mix of stomach issues, which then leads to digestive issues and and intolerances. And now I only get, you know, a few bits of eczema on my hands every so often, but I've still got some stomach stuff that I'm working through. At the moment, I've been waking up with stomach cramps most nights. And so I'm just trying to get to the bottom of that. That might be simply because we're starting to work on on the disordered eating and do more work in that space, but I'm not 100% sure. So I've come a long way, but part of that recovery, you know, there was a time where I'd have a group of people on standby that whenever I felt any physical pain, I knew who to call to immediately release it. You know, I had the chiropractor, the massage therapist, the physio, the naturopath, the acupuncturist, and you know, the list goes on. And eventually I learned that I needed to be able to just sit with the pain for a bit longer, you know, and that true recovery was going to come from acknowledging what I was experiencing and feeling that pain and realizing it it wasn't going to stay forever, that it would shift and change. And, you know, it's very hard time when you're in the awful stage of recovering from chronic illnesses, because you're usually not sleeping, which is, you know, a massive problem in itself. You're not digesting food very well. You're still having to make a living in some way. And, you know, it's very hard to find a grip on something, something to hold to because it's emotionally taxing. It's mentally taxing. You feel destabilized on all fronts. And I had this amazing naturopath who was able to really listen to me. And when I said that's not working for me and this is working, she would change tack. And so she trusted what was coming up from my body, which then meant I could trust it more, you know, and it's finding people who acknowledge that you have access to and your wisdom is just as vital as their expertise. I remember at times during the thick of it, I was on, you know, medication to keep the anxiety down because I couldn't handle that right now, you know? And so it's, it's going, okay, here's the chunk I'm going to work on right now. Okay. We're just going to focus on diet, which means I need some support with sleep and anxiety. When you get the diet sorted, then you can take, you know, you go, right now it's time for the anxiety or now it's time for the sleep or whatever it is. You sort of just need to tackle one piece at a time because there's just so much of it. Mm, Absolutely. There is so much of it. And so when did you first learn about the Enneagram or bring that side of things into your life? Mm. So I first became a coach 10 years ago in 2013. 
And in my coaching training, this was the first time I really learned about emotional words or that emotion, you know, I understood emotions conceptually, but not in reality. And at the end of the first day of training, because in coach training, one of the key skills is emotional labeling, you know, and helping our clients label, you know, emotions as part of what's coming up. And I went to the teacher at the end of the day and I said, listen, we talked a lot about emotions. Do you have like a list of these emotions? I'm surprised one isn't included in the manual. And she's like, she looked at me like a stunned fish. You know, no one had ever asked her this question before. And she's like, you're going to have to Google that. I'm like, oh, okay. And I think that was the first time I realized there was this whole part of the dictionary in my vocabulary that I was missing and starting to learn that. And really that, that moment was the shift into me taking personal work a little more seriously. And so it was a few years after that, you know, I'd started to discover personality type and see the value in working with personality type with my clients. And I was in a consulting role in a aviation company doing a change project. And they came to me and said, we're an organization of sixes. Here's a book, use that to help you. And if I know what I know now, I probably went, okay, I'm out of here. This I can't handle this. But at the time <laughs> I knew nothing. And so I set that aside. You know, I took a test. I tested as a five. That didn't sound like me, didn't land. So because I couldn't figure out this system really quickly, I just set aside and moved on. And ultimately that project wasn't really as successful as I would have liked it to have been. And so that was really my first exposure. Shortly after that, I trained as a personality hacker profiler. So that's learning how to figure out someone's Myers-Briggs type through conversation. And that was when I was first really exposed to the Enneagram. But it was only a few years later in 2018 that I really started to take it more seriously. I found the Myers-Briggs system, particularly when you get into the cognitive functions element of it and figure out your stack and you go a bit deeper with it, to be really helpful to understand how to make decisions and how my mind was working. And I found a really great basis for doing some personal development work. Personal development work that I would say was more horizontal, sort of sort of at the at the level I was currently working in to make changes in my everyday life. But the Enneagram, once I got into that, I could see how that was almost a tool for vertical development. So you could make some substantial shifts in your patterns of behavior that had a much wider reaching effect on how you really approach life in general. And so in the Enneagram, it's seeing that your personality is actually a defense mechanism that's hiding you from the real world. The real you, you are not your personality. It is an ego defensive psychological structure designed to keep all the trauma and wounds and things undealt with hidden and protected in a way. And so you use that personality to interact with the world, but it's not the real you. And it's limiting your ability to interact with choice and consciousness in your interactions with yourself and others in everyday life. So as a kid and as a child, your these psychological structures are healthy. They're healthy strategies to survive because as kids, we don't have the emotional, mental, financial resources to figure this stuff out. And we have to have a way of dealing with the psychic pain of our needs going unmet. And we, we, we draw on these things inside of us or our ego to help us do that. Once we have fully formed prefrontal cortexes around the age of 25, we do have the resources, but we've forgotten that we're using these strategies. And so as adults, when we start that journey of adult development, we start to need to see that these are limiting or self-limiting defenses 
And that means they're holding us back from interacting in, in multiple different ways of making a broad range of choice. And instead, we find ourselves acting one way in everything, but we don't really see it, you know, because these are, you know, very complicated patterns of behavior. And so I find the Enneagram gives us a language. It gives us a framework to make sense of our inner world, to give words to things, and then to give us tools to help to start to observe, inquire, and move through those self-limiting patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting. Wow. So I hadn't actually thought of it that way. So you're saying that the Enneagram is typing your personality to show you the way that you are showing up in the world almost in a defensive way. Is that what you're saying? So everyone needs to have an ego. We need to develop a healthy ego structure. So it's not to say as a kid, you don't want to develop this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as children, we all have needs go unmet. And you remember how painful having needs go unmet was. Mm. And But as kids, we have to survive. We have to be protected by someone. And so we have to figure out how to deal with that pain because we often can't do anything about it. And there's obviously different ways of expressing and managing that pain. And so there's obviously nine types on the Enneagram. That's a simplistic view. There's actually 56 types, which I'm not really going to go into. But if you think of there as being these nine core defense mechanisms, you're going to draw on one or many of those, depending on how stressful your childhood is, in order to figure out how to cope and survive in the situation you're in. Because mm-hmm. the child, all they're trying to do, with it, however they show up and appear, is to be taken care of so they can be fed and nourished and belong and feel connected to people. You know, that's all they're trying to do for as long as possible. Mm. And so these defensive structures, healthy in a child, very important, but we forget that we're using them. And so later on when we have our, you know, our prefrontal cortex and more ability to manage our emotions, we don't realize that we're reacting from a place of unconscious pain. We think that we're reacting like we've always reacted, like it's the normal way or the appropriate way to act. And actually that, that can be quite limiting. Mm. So as a seven, I'll give you an example to make this, you know, a bit clearer. So as a seven, I, that's, that's a mental type. And so we spend a lot of time imagining pleasant possibilities because we have this deep fear of suffering and pain. And so if we can find a way to control our environment and control the future and have all these plans, then we're never going to have to, you know, feel that pain. Everything is going to be pleasant. So what other people or other systems might say is that the healthy version of that is, or the strengths of it is great at brainstorming and ideating and strategizing and creative thinking. But really what that's limiting a seven from doing is having deeper connections with another human because it's incredibly difficult to talk about what's painful. You can't talk about what's painful at times. If you can't have those difficult conversations, it's very difficult to have really deep grounded relationships with people. If you're constantly looking at what's positive, then you're not on the lookout for what's negative, for what might go wrong. And that can be just as important to have a balance between those two things and to be aware of that things might be coming down the track. So it's seeing how defenses keep us trapped in just one way of being and trying to understand there are actually other ways and that those are helpful. Yeah, that sounds so useful like if you're on a healing journey you know what your type is you find out what are the defense mechanisms that you're put in place and then it's about learning how to overcome those defense mechanisms 
And to bring greater balance into your system. So there's three head types, three heart types, and three body types, but it's recognizing there are three centers of intelligence. As a head type, I'm overusing that head center and disconnected from the heart and the body. So a lot of my healing work has been trying to access and open up and trust the body. And then a lot of my work now is trying to open up and access the heart. But each type is going to have a different challenge with each of their centers. Mm, That's fascinating. Can you give us an example or two of ways that you've really seen the Enneagram helping people in your coaching work? The There's a self-preservation four type. Now, all the fours are very different. The self-preservation four tends to keep all their suffering inside of themselves. They don't tend to talk about their feelings much, but they feel very intensely and then get very, very stuck in a certain feeling. Fours often see what's missing. They, their focus of attention is what's lacking what's lacking in themselves or what's lacking in a relationship or a project that they're looking at. And so the self-preservation for tends to focus on going out and getting what they're missing and try and go out and drive for it and be sort of very focused. And what they actually need to do in coaching or therapy is actually to take time to feel their feelings. And this is one of the things people can forget is that this self-preservation for, you know, when you read it on paper, it sounds like a very emotional type but they actually need to spend time connecting to those feelings. I was working with someone last year who had 10 years of therapy already. And she said, I've never connected to my feelings this way. And it's been really powerful to do. And I, I get stunned when I hear these sort of things. You know, I think if you've been in therapy for 10 years, haven't you been feeling your feelings? Because that's as a seven, that's my work is to feel my feelings and to feel pain. And so it was just fascinating to see how, taking the time to just tune into that, you know, for that type can be really useful. Another, I've worked with a number of um, nines. So nines are often thought of as being really calm and chilled and go with the flow and friendly. That's because they put all their energy outside of themselves and they're trying to keep everything calm because nines fear separation. So if everything is calm and harmonious inside of themselves and the environment around them, then no one's going to get angry. No one's going to leave. The social nine focuses on belonging to groups. So they work really hard. One of the hardest workers on the Enneagram and people get confused and think, well, the nine is slothful. No, the nine works really hard on everything that matters to everyone else but themselves. It's really hard for them to put energy and focus their attention on what matters to them. And they find it hard to make decisions about what what's important to them. And so I worked with a client who every coaching session, I, I said to her as a practice, what, what's important to you today? What do you want to focus on? And it's, it's not exactly complicated, but for her, it was really difficult, you know, and she resisted at first. And so nines will say, well, what do you think? Why don't you tell me? Or what, you know, what do you think's best? And it's very important when coaching a nine to never give them the answer to that question, because that then undermines their trust in you that you're going to take over or try and control them in some way. And so it's simply just continually to support them to make that decision themselves. And that can be first, you know, helping them go, this is what I don't want. You know, what don't you want? Because, you know, for them to say what they do want can be really hard. So the classic example of a nine is they'll say to you, what do you want for dinner tonight? And you'd be like, oh, how about Chinese? And they're like, oh no, not Chinese. How about Mexican? You know, they'll, they'll think that, They'll indicate that they're open to having everything. But the second you start suggesting things, they'll be like, oh, no, I don't want that. Well, what do you want? Oh, I don't know. Well, how about this? Oh, no, I don't want that. And I think all of us have been stuck in that repetitive conversation in, in one relationship or another. 
And so it's just understanding for that particular type, it's because there is such a difficulty in focusing and prioritizing their own agenda. Mm, Such valuable information to have individually, isn't it? To change our lives. And so you're working with people through the Enneagram now in your coaching. What, What sort of people should come to you for help? Who are you helping? I find that I I work best and help people who feel like they've done some work already, you know, whether it's coaching or therapy or just work on their own and they can see that they've made some progress, but they've hit some sort of roadblock or plateau or they don't know what kind of help they need next. So for sometimes it's just helping people get what's that next stage? What do I do next? And I can find, you know, I find the Enneagram can really reveal that, you know, I did a lot of work and figured out a lot of stuff about sevens before I even knew about the Enneagram. But but armed with that information, I can really see so much more of my own patterns and sticking points than I could before. And so I really think it's for people who are ready for that next level of personal development or change in their life. Because once you start investing in in working in this way, it really can propel your development. One thing I found, and you might've found this as well in your recovery journey, is that some things were band-aids and some things were permanent healing. Mm. You know, I found myself going to the chiropractor week after week and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This feels like a band-aid. How can I find solutions that actually stick, you know, Mm. and spend my money on things that are permanent change? And I feel that's one of the reasons why I invest in the Enneagram because when you know you're working on the thing that'll be your linchpin in a way that works for you, you're really leveraging your own world because there are so many different personal development strategies and tips and tools and things out there. Not all of them are going to work for you. Not all of them are going to work for you at this particular moment in time. You know, everything's sort of time and place and to some extent type dependent. For some people, as opposed to starting on releasing that ego, we have to build the ego. If you haven't had a chance to build your healthy ego in childhood, then you can't release what you don't have. It's like healthy narcissism in a child. Children have to know they have ownership of something before they can learn to share it. It's the same thing with our egos as adults. You have to claim something as being your own before you can start to work through and release that as a defense mechanism. Yeah. And you don't always know that. You don't always understand that there's a reason you're receiving this resistance to a particular type of personal development work. Yes. Yeah. And I love that very specific kind of your type. Like you say, a lot of stuff is is for everybody and it's generalized. This is very specifically down to exactly who you are. Where's a good place for people to go to find their Enneagram number? Mm. So there's lots of free tests out there. I don't find many to be particularly reliable. So you're looking for a test that covers instinctual subtypes. The two tests that I think are more accurate are the Enneagram Compass, which you can find at the CP Enneagram website, and the Integrative 9 test or the IEQ 9, which you can find at the Integrative 9 website. But I sometimes think that the best way is to pick up a book and and read it and start to eliminate them from yourself. So the books I recommend are those by Beatrice Chestnut and Arania Pires. So the nine types of leadership, the complete Enneagram and the Enneagram guide to waking up are all excellent places to start depending on where you're at. I'll put those links in the show notes for people. Where can we find you? So I'm at individuo.life. And if you wanted to do Enneagram typing with me, you can. So I sit down and do a two-hour session with someone, asking them 
questions about each of the types to help see these patterns in action. And I find in addition to just revealing someone's type, it also can help them see themselves more clearly, more than they can from just answering questions on a test. And so that's quite a journey we go through to really understand what's happening and then how to use that type for growth. But that's also a place you can find where I offer coaching and courses to help develop some of these life skills. So I have a course on grieving, one on procrastination and another one on healing where you really map out all of your illnesses across the course of your life to understand what was happening at the time and connect the dots. Because again, when you can get that information from your own inner world, you then have more leverage and empowered to go, right, this is the type of healing I need right now. And you know, you're investing your time, energy, and money where is going to have the biggest impact for you. And that's what my permission to heal course is about. Because again, I found that so many things were band-aids and I really wanted to make sure I was investing in what was right for me at this moment. And that's what that course is there to help other people do. Mm, That sounds fascinating. So mapping your past illnesses. Got permission to heal. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to have a look at that too. Samantha, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and all of this information about the Enneagram. I'll put all of the links in the show notes and, yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for it's, it's been beautiful. It's been wonderful to be here and, and talk with you. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Thank you.